Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got another awesome show today. Our guest is Harris Kupperman. You may know him as Cuppy. He's the founder and CIO of Praetorian Capital, a global macro hedge fund. In today's episode, Cuppy shares why the macro setup today leads him to be as bullish on oil as it gets. You'll have to listen to the show to see what his price target is. Hint, it's high. He touches on the Fed, OPEC, ESG, and how he's implementing this trade. One more thing before we get to today's episode, think of one person who would be interested in the show and send them the episode. They'll thank you later. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with my friend, Cuppy. Cuppy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun. For the listeners, where do we find you today? I'm in Puerto Rico, beautiful Puerto Rico. We finally got the power back. Listeners, the last time I saw Cuppy, we were on his porch having a beer on the second house that I went to go try to find him at because the first house I took a wrong turn and met some of his neighbors. But this is on the west coast of Puerto Rico in a pretty world famous surf town called Rincon. Tell us real quick what a Miami guy via Mongolia ended up doing in, uh, in Puerto Rico. How long have you been there? I've been 17 years in Miami. I kind of wanted something a little different. And my wife and I went to Costa Rica. We absolutely loved it, living up in the mountains, going to the beach. And we just decided something different. And, you know, naturally, there's some tax advantages as well. But, uh, you know, after 17 years, I was just looking to do something different. And, you know, I didn't expect I'd like it as much as I like it out here. Yeah, Puerto Rico is great. I went there with my family, even my mom tagged along and I was joking. We stayed with our good buddy Wes Gray on the east side of Puerto Rico and you're on the west side. You also just got a new office in Rincon. So if you're getting a hedge fund hotel peeps down in uh, Puerto Rico, you can go look Cuppy up and uh, squat in his new hedge fund WeWork 
office. Tell us a little about it. Um, is it got a you got a surfboard in the office yet? You moved in? No, there's, there's no breakdown there. But we got a paddleboard. It actually is a hedge fund hotel. It actually was a Airbnb, and we converted it into offices. So it truly is the hedge fund hotel. But no, it took uh, almost a year to do the conversions because there's no windows available on the island for any any amount of money. And then right when we were supposed to move in, uh, the hurricane hit. And so that set us all back about a month, but we're finally moving in. And, you know, uh, I'm speaking from my house right now because they're uh, fixing our internet, which got screwed up during the storm. So hopefully we're ready to go next week. Best sunset view, I think, in Puerto Rico. Beautiful spot. What's the local surf break for you then? It's not right in town. Where's your go-to spot? I usually go to parking lots or I go up to Rivermouth. A friend of mine uh, has a place in Rivermouth, so it's kind of a gated community. So the you never really bump into anyone else there. So it's just great because quite honestly, I'm not very good at this and I get in the way mostly. And so I, it's, it's great to just, you know, have freedom to move around and not get in people's way. So I've graduated to what I call, I'm just a foam board surfer. So if you're on these wave storms, they see you coming, they'll get out of the way. But this point in life, you know, like I, I don't need to be on some fancy shortboard trying to do tricks. I'm just get out there and cruise around. Well, good. We need to have a, a good reason to come back down there. I had a total blast. We're actually moving into a new office here in, uh, in Manhattan Beach. So listeners, hopefully be done done by year end and uh, y'all can come have a coffee or a beer there. Well, we should probably talk markets at some point. It's actually a pretty interesting day. We're recording this Monday, October 10th. There was some news on the Nobel committees this week, which I'm sure we'll get to as well. But just as a little background, you know, Cuppy, I'm trying to characterize you as your framework for investing. I've heard you describe yourself as an inflection investor before. How would you describe your style of uh, investing for those who uh, don't know you? Well, I just look for opportunities and I'm really opportunistic. And, you know, what I've found is that the market's roughly pricing most securities correctly, give or take 10, 20%. And there's a lot of people that argue about what Google's earnings will do next quarter, but that's not my game. I'm looking for uh, five baggers or better. And those sort of situations only come with inflections. And what I would call an inflection, you know, there's two types. One is when a uh, cyclical industry has been miserable for a very long period of time. It's destroyed a lot of capital. People have given up on it. And uh, the industry starts changing for the better for whatever reason. Uh, usually it's something commodity and this, these are cyclical. And people have given up on it. And when the cycle turns, it turns with a vengeance, especially because at the bottom of the cycle, everyone's insolvent effectively and near bankrupt. And, you know, when the cycle turns, they make a whole lot of money, especially because, you know, a lot of the competitions disappeared and there's been a lot of mergers and bankruptcies and cost cuts. And so, you know, we're seeing that, say, in energy right now, where these companies are gushing cash. The other sort of inflection I do is usually tied to a corporate event. And, you know, I track a lot of event-driven strategies and corporate events tend to unlock uh, value and create inflections. I mean, the, the, the most obvious one is when a business has suffered for a long period of time and they finally change the CEO and the new CEO comes in and he doesn't have to be a rock star. He just has to fix the mistakes from the old guy. And, you know, oftentimes when the new CEO comes in, you, you don't know if it's going to get better or worse, but you know it's going to change direction because the new guy has a plan. And oftentimes, you know, the, the, the board of directors is friends with the CEO and they let him stay way longer than he should have stayed. And by the time they fire him, the thing is such a mess that almost anyone with a new set of eyes can fix. And we've seen a lot of inflections from, uh, you know, CEO change, but also uh, cap structure changes, you know, spinoffs and post-bankruptcy emergence, demutualization, you know, privatization, like all these things unlock value. And, and as a result, they set the business on a new trajectory and you get an inflection. I mean, 
you see a lot of these, you know, and that, that's why, you know, 20 years ago, spinoff investors made so much money until everyone realized what the game was. And now there's less opportunity there. But these go in cycles and I'm, I'm sure there'll be opportunity there at some point in my life again. Yeah. You graciously let us share your event-driven monitor, which listeners newsletter that is detailed and lengthy. Um, there's a lot of data in there. And I say that as a compliment, but we'll add a link in the show notes, but we sent one to the Idea Farm which is now free, listeners, reminder, in September. Tell us real quick what you guys attempted to do in this letter. I asked one of my analysts to start producing it, and the data was super useful, and I sent it to a couple of my friends and said, you know, where are the bugs? Because like, they, they follow these strategies too. Like, We know we have bad data. Help us find the bad data so we can make the data scans better. And so we didn't know what to call it each week when we sent it out, so we could just call it Cuppy's Event-Driven Monitor. I didn't know what else to call it. And pretty soon we had 200 uh, people subscribed, People I'd never heard of just started emailing me, hey, Cuppy, I need this. I need this. It's amazing. And so we said, let's turn it into a business because you know, I was spending quite a decent amount of money on analysts. We now have four people full-time producing this. And it, it's great that someone else is paying for it instead of me. It's basically hedge fund research uh, built by a hedge fund, you know, my fund. And uh, we're tracking about 25 event-driven strategies. We're just giving you data runs. We're then uh, giving you some cliff notes on the ones that we think are most interesting. We're color coding the ones that are timely or new. What we're basically trying to make this super useful. I realize it's over 100 pages each week, but you know, you're not supposed to read it at all 100 pages. You're supposed to cue in on the couple strategies you're fascinated by, read the cliff notes, and then go on with your weekend. And you know, most likely we're going to flag five or 10 interesting things for you each week. And you know, that, that's your homework for the rest of the week to go dig in and figure out if you care. And then we, we toss in some macro at the beginning just because right now macro is just trumping event-driven. And this goes in cycles too. But right now, you know, if the market's going to melt, it doesn't really matter what the event is, it's going to trade with the market. So we would do a lot of macro commentary as well. And I write that. And anyway, it's a year and three months old and, you know, people seem to really like it. And I'm, I'm really proud of what my team's been able to produce. And you know, I really recommend everyone take a free trial, go to kedm.com and take it for a whirl. I don't think you'll be able to go back afterwards. I mean, it's changed my trading. It's in the category for me of there's a lot of tools that I know a lot of investment shops and friends and hedge funds. And, and we used to do a few here internally where we built some software programs and we would just share them. I'm just going to read a couple examples because for me, this is always in the giant hard pile. You know, I, I remember reading when I was a young investor, some of these distressed situations, whether it was Marvel or other such the Carl Icahn early days. And just thinking to myself, my God, these people earn their alpha because this is the most complicated, you know, Elliot style. And, I'm, and some of the things on Cuppy's, y'all's website, it's, it goes, you know, demutualizations, bankruptcy exits, write offerings, spinoffs, 13D filings, insider buys, tender offers. I mean, that just like, lordy, how do you keep track of all that? So to me, but that's where value add. It's not, hey, what's your opinion on Tesla, like the 10,000th analyst that's like looking at Tesla, but you really have some rando security that's doing a rights offering that to me, it, it seems like a, a lot more opportunity. Does that seem fair? Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, everyone has a view on uh, Google and Apple. They grow kind of every year. And so you just figure out what the growth rate is. You discount it back and you're within 20% of the fair value. And I don't have any edge there, but if a company's doing a rights offering to raise capital to either, you know, delever their balance sheet or invest in some growth initiative or something, I guarantee you that it's going to totally change the dynamics of the business. And uh, that, that's where the opportunity is. So before we get to the macro, which we'll probably spend a long time with, are there any particularly memorable 
weirdo situations and you know for you like a normal category of weirdo situations is already like pretty weird but then you're the next level i feel like listeners cuppy lived in mongolia for what is a decade over a decade yeah so anyway in, in running these screens like is there any that come to mind as you like you've looked at over the last couple of years you're like huh and you dig deeper and you're like wow this is a really interesting situation are there any of the thousands you've looked at that kind of bubble to the top Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about Thungala because that's the best one. You know, Thungala is a low quality, high cost uh, South African thermal coal producer that was owned by Anglo American, which is a UK diversified mining company. And Anglo American decided to improve their ESG score by dumping Thungala. Anglo American is mostly owned by pension funds in the UK, it's owned by ETFs. You know, when you think of a spinoff, uh, a pension fund, you know, by their nature has to sell it because it's coal and they're not allowed to own it. And an ETF, it's not going to be part of the ETF basket. It's too small. They have to sell it. And who's the logical buyer? You know, you, you have UK investors. This thing trades in Johannesburg. Who's the logical buyer of this kind of toxic piece of debris? They also had huge environmental liabilities. It, it was just a messy security. And so it, it spun off and it starts trading at uh, 110 pence. And I, I'm looking at my spreadsheet and I'm redoing the spreadsheet in real time. And I'm saying, I must have missed a number somewhere. Like, this is wrong. It has almost a, a 100 pence a share of uh, cash, net cash. You get this thing that's producing cash flow, even at depressed coal prices, it could produce like, 200 pence a year of cash flow. So it's half of one times cash flow. But on an EV basis, it's like 120th of one times cash flow. I mean, we already know what the first dividend is going to be. And it trades at like 100% dividend yield. And I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm converting US dollars to pounds to rands. And I'm thinking I must have screwed something up. I do the, the model five times over like two hours. And I'm like, no, nah, I didn't screw it up. And we ended up buying a good chunk of it, you know, like a really good chunk of shares. It's about 110, 120 pence. And I'm just trying to pull up where it is now, but I think it was like a 25 bagger or something, which, you know, it's not supposed to happen in uh, finance. Like, what was the market cap? Was this thing like 20 million? Was it like 200? It was like, no, it was like uh, 200 million. Yeah. It's not, you know, terribly small. Yeah, it, it was a, a 19 bagger at the peak. And that's after they paid you, you know, multiple large dividends. I mean, the, the dividends are in rand, so it's kind of hard to, you know, backwards engineer it. But I think it worked out to almost a 25 bagger with dividends in uh, one year. And I mean, obviously, you know, the price of coal going up helped and, you know, some other things helped. Uh, you know, I wasn't supposed to be a 25 bagger, but I looked at it and said, what's the right multiple for a South African, you know, high cost thermal coal producer, three times earnings? Like, I kind of looked at it and said, I thought this was like a five bagger. And, you know, I sold mine for about a four bagger because I always leave a little on the, the table. I, you know, you just want to recycle your capital fast. In my wildest dreams, I think I didn't think it would go further, but a bunch of my readers held it. You know, they still hold it. It's a 20 bagger. They paid for, you know, five lifetime subscriptions to Ketem. <laughs> and, you know, when you think of it, like, when I tell you the situation, you know, a year later, you say, yeah, that's obvious. You know, a bunch of sellers had to sell. They really had no choice. No one was on the other side of the trade for the first week because who's looking for a South African coal mine? Like there, there is no institutional buyer for that. Even in South Africa, no one really wants it. Like so you understand the setup. But I mean, the question is, could you have flagged it? And for about two months, every week in Kedem, we said, 
this thing is going to trade, you know, weird. Like it, it's going to trade down to be forced sellers. If you haven't built a model, like what are you doing? Like get going and spend an hour. We know there's going to be distressed sellers. I mean, we didn't know it would, it would go that crazy, but we flagged it multiple times. It was so obvious. And without Kedem saying to me, hey, Cuppy, like, you know, th- this thing is coming, I would have totally missed it, you know, and I made a couple million bucks on it. That's like I said, you know, <laughs> multiple lifetime subscriptions. <laughs> well, it, it comes in in this category where it's a little like warty is the wrong word, but it's just it's a little hairy because it's like it doesn't fit into like the normal structure or Lego of a portfolio, right? So many of these stocks, they fall into a basket or it's like a classification system, right? And some of them, there's just like a natural, it's like pouring water or sand into some like rocks, like like there's a little crack that it just, no one falls under that umbrella. And so, you know, a lot of times you find the opportunity there where it's not going to be picked up by traditional index ETF. It might be six months or a year or two years later, and they're in, you're kind of like often natural buyer, but that's fun, you know, the, the finding these gems. How often do you guys kick stuff out where it's like truly kind of smack yourself in the face opportunity? Is this sort of thing where you start to, you screen and then you do diligence in one out of 10 or, you know, really interesting? Or is it like one out of 100 or? I mean, we probably flag 20 things a week. We're like, hey, go look at it. It's interesting. I'd say about once or twice a quarter, there's something where I really, really dig in because, hey, something's really interesting. And oftentimes you have a situation where you don't know what the price is going to be. You just know there's a weird situation coming up that's likely to lead to a mispricing. But you spend a day building your model and then sometimes it just doesn't work like you expect it to. And sometimes, like in the case of Thungella, I actually would have bought more. If that started trading at like 300 pence and it was an easy double... I would have bought a lot more because it's traded so cheaply. I literally didn't trust my own numbers because it just seemed so bizarre. But no, I'd say once or twice a quarter, we find something really interesting to do. I mean, one thing about Kedem, and I want to make it very clear, we don't give out stock recommendations. Uh, we're not a recommendation service. We're a data service. We tell you what we think is coming that's interesting, and then it's up to you to figure out what it's worth. But flagging it's 90% of the battle because if no one told me about Fungella, I would never have seen it. Well, if you guys want to get weird, sign up for a free trial and, and start to look at some of these ideas. So let's skip over to kind of where you've spent a lot of time in the last few months thinking and writing on your blog. The nice thing about a podcast like this, listeners, and this was the original intent, man, five plus years ago. I have to look it up when this thing started. You and I and your buddy shared a few beers on the roof in Puerto Rico, talking ideas and telling stories and markets and, you know, certainly a lot of what we talked about then has transpired in the ensuing months. This would have been when? February, January? So give us a little overview. What's the world look like to you today here in October? What are you thinking about on the macro situation? Mr. Bernanke just got a Nobel this morning. So what's the starting point? What are you thinking about today? Well, in terms of the Nobel, it's amazing to see that the guy who built the entire uh, QE money printing system that's now imploding <laughs> was given a Nobel right before the match is lit and it really detonates. You know, I think it's really about to go boom. It just seems funny that they give it to him now when it, the, the, the facade's already sort of crumbling. But I mean, the history of Nobel is that they give it to war criminals and other evil people, and now they give it to bankers, I guess. <laughs> On that jumping off point, what's the world look like today? You said something's going to go boom. What's getting ready to go boom? Well, the history of the Federal Reserve since I got into this industry over 20 years ago 
is that they overstimulate because when times are good, you know, everyone likes them. And so they just keep giving more of that, that the happy juice. And then eventually they panic about inflation and they uh, raise rates and they keep going until they break something. And then after they break something, they panic with the happy juice again and they overdo it as they always do. And you get another huge boom, then another huge bust. And, you know, the Federal Reserve will keep going this cycle once again until they break something. They, they always break something. They never stop without breaking something. And so I think they're trying to break something, except this cycle might be different in that because of the inflation that's impossible to rein in and they'll, they'll never catch inflation. They're going to succeed in breaking uh, the central banks. You know, last cycle in 08, they broke investment banks. Uh, you know, some of the large, you know, U.S. mortgage banks, they blew up. But, you know, it, it was systemic, I guess. But it's very different than if you go out there and blow up the Swiss National Bank and the BOE. I mean, the SNB just reported a $100 billion uh, loss in Q2. Just think of the magnitude of these losses. It might have been Q3. But in any case, I mean, look, look at the, the Federal Reserve. They're, they're sitting there with $50 billion of equity. And they have uh, an $8 trillion balance sheet. And the mark-to-market on all the MBS that they bought at the top of the cycle, they must have a trillion change uh, mark-to-market loss. Of, of course, they, you know, they don't have to mark-to-market their own book. They, they have to hold to maturity. But the net result is that you know, if you look at their funding costs, they're bleeding a few billion dollars a day right now funding all these MBS. I mean, that, that's their net cash that goes out every day. And, you know, that's not sustainable. And then they've committed to QT, which means they're going to sell these MBS, which means they realize the loss, which means that that $50 billion of balance sheet equity is vaporizing. I mean, they, they sent over $100 billion to uh, the Treasury last year. And this year, the Treasury is going to have to send them something like uh, $500 billion or something. And, you know, as you raise rates naturally, uh, you know, the U.S. Doesn't, hasn't termed out its, its interest rates much because, I mean, the Treasury has been mismanaged horribly, like everything else in the government. And so, the, the, you know, if you raise uh, interest rates to 4.6, which is where they're telling you they're going to take rates, and you hold it there for a couple of years, you know, one, two, three years, you're going to take uh, the interest expense from $300 billion up past a trillion. And, I mean, a trillion, that's bigger than the military. Like, it ends up being 4 or 5% of GDP. You're going to literally squeeze the economy to death at, at these interest rates. Yet they'll never catch inflation because oil is about to scream out of control. And, you know, that, that's what I really want to talk about. But, you know, we're in the first phase where they're in their head saying, if we raise interest rates enough, we'll be able to catch inflation. And, you know, there's good inflation, there's bad inflation, there's uh, owner equivalent rent. And when that goes up, everyone says, oh, good, you know, you know, BlackRock's making some more money and everyone's happy. And, yeah, it's terrible if you're a middle class guy has to pay for rent, but no one ever cares about them. They care about their, their friends in private equity. Wages going up. Oh, that, that's great. That, that offsets the owner equivalent. And, you know, that's good. You know, we got to give the middle class a little bit of a raise. Let's give them 2% each year. That's nice. And so they kind of ignore that. It's food and energy because uh, food and energy trickles down into everything else, whether it's services, whether it's hard goods. And even food is basically just energy because it's, it's transport costs, it's growing costs, it's all the components. And so it really just dials back into energy costs because energy drives everything. And, you know, what you're seeing in Europe, Right now, with nat gas, uh, I think it's about to hit uh, the U.S. when it comes to all petroleum products. And I like to talk about oil just because it's the one that everyone, you know, talks about the price per barrel. But I think it's every energy, you know, sub-index is about to scream out of control. And that's going to bring uh, inflation out of control. And the Federal Reserve is going to have too much of the bad inflation. And, you know, that's what they've been chasing for the last uh, six months. Uh, you know, they've been chasing, you know, bad inflation. But at some point... They're going to break stuff trying to chase it, and I don't think they can catch it anyway. And they're totally in a box, and I think they don't realize it yet.
Okay, so there was a lot in there, um, and we can unpack, and, and listeners, again, we'll put some show note links to, to Cubby's writings, including the Fed is fooked, part one and two, maybe part three. I don't know how many you have now at this point. A four now, but they're going to just keep coming. <laughs> yeah, it's CPI week. We're recording this, and I do, I do my polls, as I love to do, and the expectation is that inflation's coming down pretty quickly, at least from the respondents. We did a podcast, you mentioned the owner's equivalent rent with with Rob Arnott and Cam Harvey, which I thought was really thoughtful, where they said back in August, they said, look, this is probably going to be elevated just by the way the math works, you know, throughout the rest of the year. They even had a comment that I think was really anti-consensus. They said, you may not have seen the high inflation print for this cycle, which I feel like would be extreme anti-consensus view. So where do you want to hop off? Do you want to, you want to start talking about inflation? Do you want to start talking about this energy thesis? You had a, a really great quote where you said, OPEC controls the price of oil and oil is the world's central banker, not the Fed, which I thought was pretty interesting comment. I'll hand you the mic. Where do you want to go? Well, let's go talk about oil because that's what's driving everything here. From a big picture standpoint, oil is a cyclical commodity. At the bottom of the cycle, everyone kind of goes bankrupt. At the top of the cycle, all the oil companies start drilling some more, and then they go bankrupt again. Supply and demand is what sets the price. And there's been multiple cycles since they discovered oil in 1860. What's happened this cycle that's very different is that when the price starts going up, we haven't seen any supply response. There's been underinvestment since 2014, and there's been no supply response. You know, why is there no supply response? Well, in the West, you have uh, this ESG thing, and... What you have is all the banks are scared to lend because they don't want to be called you know, anti-ESG. So the banks really aren't lending. There's no equity capital available to drill and explore. A lot of the, the super majors are taking their cash flow and building windmills instead of you know, exploring or even maintaining the existing projects. A lot of them are actually divesting their projects. You know, pension funds are selling, endowments are selling. So there's just no capital in the industry. The industry's starved of capital. From a regulatory standpoint, Biden's going around canceling pipelines, canceling drilling permits, not you know, issuing any permits. In Europe, they're uh, suing various energy companies in court and saying that they're not doing enough about carbon emissions. So if you're an energy company and Biden's telling you, look, we're looking at excess profits taxes, we're looking at stopping exports, we're looking at price ceilings, maybe we'll nationalize it, who, who knows? I mean, would you drill any wells? Of course you wouldn't. You would take your cash flow from the wells, you'd pay yourself some big dividends, you'd go to the beach. Because why would you take the risk when you don't know what the hell they're going to do? And that's happening in Europe, too. That's happening around the globe. And, you know, the, the net result is there's really been no supply response. And as energy prices go up, what we've also seen is that the demand keeps growing. And I, I say this all the time, but it's worth saying again, there's 7 billion people on this earth that want the same standard of living that you and I have in terms of per capita energy consumption. And many of these people consume almost no energy you know, they don't have refrigeration. They don't have microwaves. They don't have light bulbs even. So a lot of them are still burning wood. And they'll eventually save up money. Uh, they, they work a lot harder than us Americans do. They'll eventually save up money and they'll buy all the toys that we have. And they'll use a lot more energy. And as those people start using more energy, energy consumption globally is going to accelerate because we're in this uh, S-curve. If you look at energy consumption above about 3,500 of uh, per capita income, your energy consumption really expands. 
And a lot of these uh, places, whether it's uh, India or it's uh, Southeast Asia or it's Africa, they're right at that 3,500 where their energy consumption expands. And so that's why we've seen energy consumption uh, in, in the non-OECD just exploding, like literally exploding. And then in the OECD, they keep giving everyone stimulus because uh, you know, no one should go without. Just today, uh, France announced that they're going to be giving stimulus to everyone. The UK last month, you know, don't worry about energy bills. We'll just cap your bill here. <laughs> what is it? California gave everyone uh, $1,000 because inflation was too high. I mean, what do you think that does to inflation? <laughs> so if you don't uh, penalize guys for uh, using uh, more energy, well, then, you know, energy demand uh, doesn't stop. I mean, if you made guys in the UK pay for their energy, they'd go around turning off light bulbs and turning the thermostat down. But if you don't incentivize them to do that through the price function, no one does it. And so the net result is that the supply response has been totally destroyed and uh, the, the demand response has been, you know, thrown out the window. And, you know, a couple thousand years of uh, economics has just been turned on its head. And we all know where this is going to go, but uh, <laughs> it's really quite obvious. But the, the politicians are all, you know, searching around for short-term solutions. They get reelected. And all this is going to make the, the crisis a whole lot worse. So maybe stop there and, you know, we'll kind of drill down on this. And then we'll talk about, you know, what happens next. It's been a weird year, right? So you and I were talking back in, I think it was Jan or Feb. Oil was, you know, in an uptrend, but let's call it somewhere 80s. And then it went just absolutely parabolic north, spent majority of the summer, spring, and sort of that 100, 120 range. There's been an odd situation in the U.S. where we've started depleting the petroleum reserve, which, you know, to me seems like a really odd time to be doing it, but I'm not a politician. And in oil's kind of come back down, you know, sliding uh, back to where, where are we now? Somewhere 90-ish, I don't know. How do you think this plays out? You know, and, and is, is the way in your mind, is the thesis owning the actual commodities? Is it owning equities? Is it some sort of spread trades? How should we start thinking about, you know, putting money to work in, in uh, this thesis? Sure. I mean, I think the way this plays out is that this year's made what, what was a thesis last year when I was talking to you, which was right before the Russian war. You know, I had a thesis that oil would go higher. What was changed with the Russian war has, you know, taken both thesis and made it kind of supernova. And I think it's really important just to look at, you know, rough numbers. If you look at today, right now, the global economy is sort of in balance, give or take a couple hundred thousand barrels of supply and demand. The reason why it's in balance is that you have the OECD countries basically selling a million and a half barrels a day from their uh, strategic petroleum reserves. And I think this makes no logical sense. I mean, oil is not particularly expensive by historical standards anyway. Back in you know, 2012 to 2014, it was around 100 and no one was in panic. And so you, know, you have this 1.5 million. Then you have this weird situation where the Chinese can't decide what they're doing about COVID. So they're just going around locking down cities sort of arbitrarily. You know, one guy tests wrong and they lock down 30 million people. And so that's basically taken 2 million barrels of, of demand off the market. And I don't think that's sustainable because you can't run an economy when you keep locking down all the time. And so I think after the party Congress, they're going to be done with all this nonsense. So that's 2 million barrels that comes back online. Russian oil exports are going to decline uh, over a million barrels in 2023. All the Western firms just left the country. The Russians don't have the capacity to reinvest. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the technological know-how. They can't even keep their existing wells running. I mean, they just can't get pumps and parts. And so that's going to be a million barrels, and that might be two million barrels even that the production declines. Let's just call that a million. And then uh, global demand grows, let's call it a million or two every year. That's just what it does because of those uh, 7 billion people. 
And so you add it all up and you have about, let's call it uh, 6 million barrels, okay, of swing offset by, you know, maybe the world grows on the production side by a million barrels. You know, shale kind of recovers a little, you know, some of the, the offshore stuff starts kicking in. So let's just call this a 5 million swing from roughly balanced today to deficit. A 5 million deficit would be the biggest deficit we've ever faced. It's 5% basically of global demand. Uh, I mean, that's like catastrophic. Uh, you're going to draw down inventories at an insane rate and uh, the whole refining system will break. I think this sends oil to some you know, insanity price. And it's interesting that it all kind of coalesces around November, December, where the SPR releases, the Chinese Party Congress, it all ends. And I just think oil is going to do a supernova. I think what's really interesting is that there's been a lot of guys shorting oil because in 2008, you had an economic crisis and the price of oil dropped. And everyone's just remembering 2008, you know, generals always fight the last war. But there's been a lot of uh, situations where you have had economic crisis and the price of oil has gone up. I mean, think of the 70s. And so I think people are short and they, they, they shouldn't be short. So that, that adds a little fuel to the fire. But what really I think has happened is that OPEC really changed the dynamic last week. They looked at what was happening and they said, you know, basically you have a 5 million deficit, okay? I think everyone knows the same numbers and maybe they haven't uh, done the math, but uh, they, they should know the numbers. So when you look at the Federal Reserve and they're raising rates, what the Federal Reserve is really saying is that America is a rich country. We can print dollars. We'll always have enough oil. But we need to make sure that 5 million uh, barrels of demand disappears. So let's go to India. We're going to give you guys a currency crisis. We'll take, you know, a million or two here. We'll go to Pakistan. You guys are screwed. You know, we're going to take some here. We'll go to Turkey. You know, you guys uh, have no energy independence. We're going to take a little back here. And just kind of going around the world playing whack-a-mole with poor countries and trying to set off currency crises and banking crises and trying to force these guys to consume less. But it's hard to you know, force 5 million barrels of reduced consumption globally, because even in the GFC, it only dropped three. And, you know, that, that's the true GFC. Like, you need a bigger crisis than that by almost, you know, half again. And so, you know, that, that's what basically Powell's been saying. He's been saying, we're going to rein in inflation, which we talked about before was oil. We're going to take the price of oil down, and we're going to do this by destroying 5 million barrels of demand. What OPEC said last week is said, hey, you guys can't just go and bankrupt all our customers. Like, how is that good for the world? We're going to stop you from doing that. If you want to destroy 5 million barrels of demand, well, we're going to pull 2 million barrels off the market and make you have to destroy 7 million. You target 7 million, we're going to make you destroy 10 million. We're united and we have the ability. You'll never actually destroy enough barrels without destroying the galaxy. And so why even fight this battle? You can't win it. And that's effectively what they told uh, Powell. You guys can't ever catch the price of oil. Stop trying to target oil. And I don't think people took that lesson and understood what OPEC really was saying. So with the commodities, again, so like, like, all right, so we have the election coming up. We have CPI print this week. And you've had a, a successful hedge fund for a number of years now. How do you think about making this trade? And is this something that, you know, most individuals can replicate? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to win. I mean, almost everything tied to energy will go up. I mean, what you're trying to do is find that that middle balance between taking risk and getting the timing right and also uh, exponential upside. I've been playing this mostly with long-dated uh, futures options. And when you say long-dated, you're a lot more long-dated than what people mean when they think long-dated. I feel like half the investors today, you know, are long-dated. They mean like end of year. You're like... Um, I'm 2025 20, mostly. I have some 23s and some 25s. I mean, I bought these things a year ago and then they've done well, you know. 
Uh, I'm up a couple times already on my investment, but I think it's a great way to, to play this. Um, I don't think this is a quick and done. I think we have a long-term energy crisis that'll just keep going and I, I want long-dated options to play it out. I mean, long energy is effectively long inflation. I own some of the offshore services companies. I own Valeris and Tidewater. They're, Valeris is the largest offshore drilling company. Uh, Tidewater is the lo- largest offshore services company. Uh, my, my view is that over the rest of this decade, you're going to see a lot of growth in uh, energy services offshore, just because the countries where you're seeing a lot of discoveries are countries where they really need the dollars. And they're not as fixated on ESG and carbon and other things. You know, they, they just want the dollars to grow their countries. And so you're seeing places like Guyana and Suriname and Namibia and Brazil, where they've just welcomed this uh, exploration. And with exploration comes discovery. And with discovery comes, you know, more exploration because people are making money. And so I think the demand for this equipment is going to appreciate a lot. And a lot of this equipment trades at fractions of replacement costs. And that's really the two ways I'm playing it. I mean, I also own just some uh, BNO, which is the Brent Oil ETF. Uh, it's picking up a little better than a 2% monthly roll yield uh, just because the the shape of the futures curve. Uh, basically, the front month is at a premium to the, the second month. And so that 2 to 3% monthly yield is 30 to 40% a year that I make uh, in a pretty you know, risk-free way. And so that's pretty attractive. Uh, plus, I get you know the appreciation of the price of oil. And plus, I, I like the fact that Brent is a global commodity. You can't have any one country just price cap it. And so that's a nice thing to round out the portfolio. It might not have the same amount of torque, but I think it's going to do very well. And anyone could buy that if you have an equities account. We had uh, Kyle Bass on the podcast, and one of his phrases when he's talking about the energy companies, and you referenced this earlier with the politicians, he says, we need to stop fat shaming these energy companies. It's so hard to watch politicians who I think at this point, like the majority, I think they know better and they do it anyway, which is so frustrating where they're talking about all the price gouging from the gas stations, which have like the lowest margin business on the planet. They talk about all these things, which like if I was an energy company CEO, I'd be like, bro, F you, like where were you guys for the decade or you go back a few years ago when energy companies were in just like a world of pain and, and now that like you're trying to incentivize increasing supply and like you're you're hating on us, come on, man. Anyway, the, the interesting part is our, our, a lot of our cash flow and value-based screening metric strategies are finding obviously a lot of opportunity in energy because many of these companies and stocks are quite cheap and cash gushing at these levels. Yeah, they, they are quite cheap. And it's interesting that your screening methodologies are coming to the same thing that I'm using this for. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? And, and we're agnostic and it's always curious to see what's going on in the world. And then sometimes between the US and foreign, et cetera, you know, at one of the, as sort of a lot of the very expensive stocks have imploded over the past couple of years, and seemingly continue to, you know, where certain sectors that have gone in and out of favor over the decades, you know, full cycle. I mean, tech being one that just my career has been, you know, the darling, the hated, the darling, seemingly the hated again, I don't know, but trying to become somewhat agnostic about where these companies are located and what they do, I think is hard for investors. But energy, even now is what, like 4% of the S&P, five now, down from almost a third at its peak? At the end of this cycle, it will uh, be larger than technology. 
you know, energy, it gets really large and it shrinks down to nothing and gets really large again. And it, it, that's the cycle. And that's why a guy like me, I, I love these sort of cyclical businesses because there's just a lot of amplitude to the inflection. But no, I think that energy will take a lot of market share from investor capital over time. And it's going to be a painful, a slow grind higher because no one wants to invest in it. But I mean, the cash flows don't lie. We got a great chart on this. We'll add to the show note links listeners on this sort of tech and energy oscillation through the decades. Great visualization of kind of the popularity uh, waxing and waning over time and what's hot, you know, for sector ideas. It's funny that you have this cyclicality, you have 100 years of history, and yet investors can't seem to make money out of it. It's just odd that money flows in at the extremes in valuation, and then they all sell at the you know, trough of valuation, and they're doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And you know, it, it never makes any sense to me, because you can see this visually. Story as old as time, Cuppy. That's not something that's like, you know, like that's just, that's par for the course, right? Right. Well, I mean, you and I are both kind of harvesting that, uh, that alpha premium in different ways, but it's just interesting that uh, there's not more people doing this. What else is on your mind around the energy complex while we're still on this topic of uh, Fed, inflation, energy? Are there any points, thoughts that we didn't cover here that you think are important not to miss? Yeah, let's cover one more. And this is kind of a thought piece, uh, you know, so think outside the box about everything you thought you knew about Federal Reserve policy. Let's say uh, Iran and uh, Saudi got into a war tomorrow and uh, all that oil came offline. Well, the price of oil would go to 500 and the Federal Reserve would be forced to lower interest rates to save the economy. I mean, you can't have oil at 500. You have to save the economy. Even though the economy is experiencing massive inflation, they have to cut rates to save the economy. It's an existential almost. And it's like a, a tail event that no one expected. Well, what if oil goes to 500 because Biden's roaming around canceling pipelines and not allowing anyone to drill? Would the Fed have the same follow-through uh, mechanism? I don't know, but uh, I, I kind of think oil's going there. And so you, you might see the Fed actually at a certain price level have to panic to save the rest of the economy just because there's so much leverage in the economy. And at some point, they're going to give up on chasing inflation because they can't, they can't ever catch it. They're, I mean, inflation already lapped them, if you, you kind of think about it. You know? You're at a racetrack and they've been chasing it and then you know, inflation already just zipped past them. And so I don't think they're going to catch inflation. And at some point, they're going to say, look, uh, 7% mortgage, is a, that's not good for homeowners. And, you know, look what we've done to our friends in private equity. We can't let them have a down year. And, you know, look at what's happening to this sector and this sector. Let's stop. We're, we're not going to catch oil. Oil is, you know, the Federal Reserve is here to uh, provide price stability and uh, to uh, create jobs or to insure jobs. Uh, I forgot the exact language. I mean, the Federal Reserve has nothing in their mandate about energy policy. And so if other parts of the government, uh, our government and other governments, are set on having an energy crisis because you know, they're fat shaming the energy companies, like you said, then maybe the Federal Reserve says, look, let's say we're going to do price stability X energy and we're going to focus on the job side because that's really more important to, uh, you know, America than the price of energy. And everyone's just going to suffer a bit on energy. And I think that uh, you're going to have a situation pretty soon where energy gets to a price level where most other companies uh, buckle under the strength of energy. And you know, I like to joke that it's going to murder all the Q-SIPs because uh, pretty much everything else in your portfolio that's not energy is probably going to drop a lot, like, like a lot. 
uh, and the Fed will have to ride to the rescue to save the economy. That's probably what sends energy into that kind of parabolic blow-off insanity phase. Well, we're still really early in this process. So as we think about this, you know, you got some thoughts on ESG and kind of its role and what's going on here. What's Cuppy's take? Well, I think ESG is just horribly misguided. I mean, there's no one size fits all for, you know, different public companies. You know, every company needs to be a good corporate citizen. They need to treat their employees fairly and, you know, treat their shareholders fairly. Obviously, that's the piece I care about. But, you know, you can't just set broad guidelines and say, this is now ESG, you have to do it. And I think that's where the mistake started. I mean, and then ESG, which in theory makes a lot of sense, I think got co-opted by guys who say, oh, we don't like, uh, you know, carbon dioxide, or we don't like, you know, this thing you do, or we don't like this thing you do, or we don't like this thing you do. And the, the companies can't possibly comply. And then you had all these, uh, you know, investors say, we're ESG because it's good for marketing. And then they all dumped a bunch of uh, energy stocks at the low, which seems kind of crazy. And it, it just made the problems a lot worse. And I don't think ESG funds have served their investors very well. I mean, they took the bottom of a eight-year bear market and they sold all their energy stocks right into a bull market. How can you possibly be doing something useful for your clients? They, they meanwhile, you know, repositioned all the capital into these green energy things that don't work. I mean, they, they lost on both sides of the trade. I think ESG is this really misguided thing. We're probably at peak ESG now, much like we're probably at peak carbon and everything else. I tend to think that you know, when energy prices are low, it's great to talk about windmills and solar panels and you know, carbon fighting and everything else. But when it starts impacting your pocketbook and you can't you know, afford to heat your home, you go cut down some old growth to burn it. You know? And that's what we're seeing all over Europe. They're cutting down these old growth forests and they're paying other countries to do it too. They're, I mean, they're, they're burning more coal than they have in the last decade. Like, where did ESG go? I mean, it's all been bastardized. And I think, you know... If you were a German politician, you said, let's go build some more windmills and solar. No one wants it anymore. They just want their nuclear power plants turned back on. That's clean energy. And for whatever reason, the Germans got in their heads to shut down all their clean energy and become a, you know, a vassal state of Russia. I mean, they did it to themselves and they deserved to all freeze now. And you know, they deserved to all be speaking Russian too. I mean, I can't imagine what terrible economic policy they, they did over a decade where no one stopped them, really. It's insane. So as a macro, you're kind of a consummate trader. One of the most important things to do as an investor, as a PM, is to say, okay, what's the bear case? Like, you know, how does this trade end up going south? One of the protections, obviously, you have is, is by buying options. So your, your downside is limited. But what brings oil back down to like 50 or 60? Or like what causes this trade to not happen? You may have to get pretty creative here. But what is the uh, potentials? It's hard to overcome 5 million barrels. You, you can't do it on the, the supply side. You just can't ramp up that fast. These are multi-year projects outside of shale. And shale's kind of doing what it can do. I mean, maybe shale adds a million barrels. Like, but they, they don't have the drilling crews. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the pipe. Like, it's unlikely to ramp up fast. No, it has to be on the demand side. You need some global catastrophe, whether it's lockdowns, whether it's a, you know, a true economic crash, you need something that uh, stops the demand side. And, you know, even if you stop the demand side, well, then no one invests in uh, production and you just defer the problem a year. I don't really see uh, like a bear thesis. I see more of a timing problem where 
you might get the timing wrong on the price of oil. You know, that's the risk of using options versus just owning a producer or owning equipment or something else. But I don't really see it like a really downward thesis outside of them destroying the economy or locking us all down again. I guess the other risk is Putin like lobs a nuke and, you know, you have a billion less people like that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was creative. We asked for creative and uh, we, we got to it. Yeah. What else is on your macro mind? So your portfolio, are you guys still open to investors? Can we even mention it? You guys got a private fund. Yeah, we're still open to investors. We got like three slots left in the US. The government gives us only 99. Uh, you can go to praycap.com where we have information about the fund. And we also have our performance numbers, which have been very good. Uh, we've been up this year. I guess the other thing on my mind that's worth talking about uh, and we didn't mention is that the solution to all these problems is uh, nuclear. You know, if, if you were to uh, announce tomorrow that we invented this new technology that doesn't produce any carbon, that produces amazingly reliable, very cheap baseload power that can be used in conjunction with uh, green energy, because, you know, it's not always sunny, it's not always windy, and you can basically phase out all the coal plants, all the nat gas plants, and you just build these things. I think everyone would be super excited about it. But instead, you come with uh, 70 years of baggage. And, uh, you know, there's been some accidents, there's been some mistakes. Uh, not going to deny that. And as a result, everyone's terrified of this technology. And, um, you know, you see some countries that have accepted the inevitability, like China and India, that are racing ahead to build these things. You see some places like Germany that have three left and they're trying to shut them down as fast as possible. And I think somewhere in the middle is the right solution. I tend to think that you're going to see a real resurgence of nuclear, especially as the technology gets better and becomes even more reliable and lower cost. And I think, you know, it takes some time to build nuclear power plants, so it's not going to impact my oil thesis. But if you're going to have, uh, you know, EVs driving around, like where does that electricity come from? It's, it's not an EV if you burn coal. Someone had a great uh, a tweet the other day. They were like, you know, first of all, your Tesla runs on electricity, they're like, it depends where you live. So if you live in, and I'm going to totally massacre these locations and what they do, but they're like, if you live in, you know, Norway, it's your Tesla runs on hydroelectric energy. If you live in XYZ, like your Tesla literally runs on coal. You know, it's like if you live in XYZ, it, it runs on nuclear. So it just depends what your energy source for your electric grid is. I heard a great phrase that I think is, um, we spend a lot of time with this when anytime the politicians start talking about buybacks, which is just like makes everyone's IQ go to down 50 points. But it said it needs a little better branding. I heard someone mention, they said that we, should, we need to rebrand it elemental energy or something like that. Like it just gives it a better sounding. We had Nathan Mirvold on the podcast and he was involved in kind of this new 2.0 nuclear design company, but they had just got approval. I think it was Wyoming to start to try to build some, you know, test modules. But I've always wondered, I was like, you know, if I'm a state governor, and particularly in a state that may be, you know, not marginalized, but one that just the economy is struggling or energy prices are high, I'd be like, yo, let's let's try it. Like, we're going to put it in this corner over here. Let's give them a shot. But it's crazy to me. I don't know. I mean, I think the crazier thing is that they're actually shutting down plants. I mean, it's already built. It's already there. Like, why shut it down before it's useful life? And you know, that's, that's the mistake Europe made. I mean, that, that's why they're having this energy crisis right now. They had perfectly good nuclear plants and they shut them. And I mean, they deserve to be cold for making the wrong decision. But I think eventually people will come to the conclusion that no power source is ideal. They all have flaws. I mean, wind power is killing all the birds. I mean, 
it's super sad. Plus they're ugly. Plus, you know, you got to replace the turbines every couple of uh, years. And they have these giant graveyards of turbines, which are made out of petrochemicals, mind you. It's not even clear based on how you do the math, if it's actually stopping any carbon emissions or it's just, you know, changing how they're, you know, being done. And so I think nuclear is going to be the thing they settle on just because they, they've tried everything else. It doesn't work. And, you know, I'm very bullish uh, nuclear and, and I, I own a lot of uh, physical uranium. There's an entity called uh, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. It just owns uh, uranium. At some point, I think the price has to go up high enough that it incentivizes people to produce more uranium because we're in a deficit situation right now. Uh, Russia is not, no longer doing enrichment for the West. They're no longer exporting enrich, enriched material to the West. That deficit's going to get worse. And as a bunch of nuclear power plants get turned on in uh, China and India and some other places on this earth, the demand's going to grow and the supply isn't growing. It's kind of like a recurring message with me, but supply and demand, it's, it's super simple stuff. And I, I just have done it for 25 years and been very successful at it. You know, find something that's in a deficit and find a reason why the price is about to go up because sometimes deficits last for a long time. And in the case of uranium, I think people are going to finally come to the conclusion that uh, it's the least bad option. And I think you're going to see a lot more plants that were supposed to shut down as staying online. And as a result, you know, the demand for uranium should keep expanding just from existing plants, not even new plants. And there's a lot of new plants. So I guess that's my other stock pick for you guys is uh, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. What's uranium been up to? It's just kind of been chopping back and forth. Is that the main takeaway this year? Yeah, it's about 48 a pound right now. Uh, the, the peak is around 60 and the low is around 40. So it's kind of right in the middle of that range. Uh, I bought mine a year ago when uh, spot was 31. So it's been an okay investment, especially in a very tough year where the market's down a bunch. But what I like about it also is that uh, uranium, it doesn't respond to what happens with Apple or the S&P or you know, interest rates. I mean, in the end, if the world uses 185 million pounds and it only produces 150 million pounds, the 35 million has to come from somewhere. And eventually, you know, the, you, you drain the warehouse and then the price goes up. That's the history of commodities. And the price goes up and then they start producing more. And so at some point uh, on, on the way to the price going up, but before they start producing more, you sell it. And so I, I just do that over and over again. And I, I think, you know, uranium is right at the point where you start to see the price, which has been kind of grinding higher, actually start to accelerate. So as you think about your strategies and putting it together in a portfolio, how do you, like, as you talk to people as potential investors, how do you kind of describe where it fits in? You know, the most investors today are in a world of pain. I think, you know, we surveyed our listeners and it's probably around 90% of people are probably down this year because stocks and bonds are both down. And that for most investors is like, is the portfolio. Are you kind of like the Sri Racha, you know, or are you the, um, you know, the alts bucket? Like, how do people think about when they think about a macro fund like yours that's, you know, by definition going to be different? What do they think about as like as far as position sizing and how to blend it into the mix? I mean, I think if someone wants to invest in the fund, they should make it a small uh, piece of their uh, portfolio, probably a lot smaller because it's going to be more volatile. I mean, I tell my LPs that... Uh, about every two years, I expect to be down 35% from peak to trough. And you know, I don't think there's a lot of funds that uh, will say that publicly. I mean, a lot of funds will do everything possible to avoid that happening. Charlie Munger will. He says it. Charlie, some of the, the Berkshire you know, guys, he's the best. But he's like, you know, if you can't handle a 50% loss, which has happened multiple times in Berkshire, he's like, you shouldn't be here. And this is just a, what most people see as a safe you know, investment. 
I mean, safe investments come from buying assets at very low valuations and then not being levered because the price can trade anywhere. So, you know, you want to make sure you're not the one getting a margin call at the bottom. I'm not saying I don't use any leverage. I use some, but I try to keep it, you know, pretty uh, subdued. And, you know, if you buy really cheap things that are earning, you know, cash flow every day, every day, the, the company's more valuable just because they've retained earnings. And, you know, just on a, on a time and valuation scale, you can't go too many quarters without the, the cash flow that keeps building up, forcing the share price higher if you buy something at two times earnings or three times earnings. When we do the inflection investing, which is great, but we, we try to focus on semi-monopoly sort of situations. I mean, obviously, offshore drilling isn't a monopoly business. There's a lot of companies doing it. But if you buy the largest guy, they're the lowest cost guy, just from economies of scale. Whereas in some other situations, we're truly investing in monopoly businesses or semi-monopoly businesses. And if you buy them at two and three times cash flow with good balance sheets, I mean, Time is on your side because uh, the cash just keeps building up and it usually comes back to you in dividends and buybacks or they, they acquire stuff and it just keeps growing. And so buying really cheap stuff, buying stuff with strong macro tailwinds, you know, every time I ever lose money, it's because the tailwind isn't there. I expected a tailwind, the tailwind turned and I was stubborn. I said, this thing's too cheap. I'm not going to sell it. And that's usually when I get hurt. When you look at that volatility that we're going to have a down uh, 30, 35 every two years. That's usually because the stock starts at 10, it goes to 30, and then it just pulls back to 20. And you, you could say, Cuppy, you just lost a third of the money. And, and I'd say, no, nah, we doubled our money. And, you know, it's just, you know, a matter of perspective because we're kind of both right. And, you know, we just saw this in, in oil, you know, oil, I got long oil at around 40. It went all the way to 120. It bottomed uh, two weeks ago in the 70s. And here we are at 90. It's that exact same, uh, you know, makes a big move, pulls back a bunch makes the next move higher. And if you can't stomach that pullback, you're the sort of guy that's going to sell at the low, whereas I'm the sort of guy that adds uh, on the pullback. You have to be willing to accept a lot of volatility. And I, I tell that to all my potential investors and, you know, scare some of them away. But it's part of the nature of it. You don't want people calling you up and saying, what happened? I saw my statement last month and I can't believe how much we're down. And I say, so, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, you, you just have to accept that. And, it's just part of the game. And so I think that's very different. Most funds, they, they spend a lot of money on hedges. They buy options. They do a lot of things, which it reduces the volatility. So it makes it, it more marketable. But, but, but the downside is that it, you know, if you're looking at this as a long-term investor in the fund, why do I care about the volatility? I just want to make the most money possible in a tax-advantaged way. Why do I want to give away 50 bips every month to buy volatility hedges? I just you know, I want that 600 bips in my pocket. And so, you know, I just have a different mentality about it all. And I think that on a rolling three-year basis, it seems to be working. We talked to a lot of investors over the years and, you know, much like you, what you just described, I think it's really important to educate them on the strategy, the implications, expectations. But, you know, we had many investors, this is going on 10 years now, VTFs, but they'd call, talk to them, call them up and they'd say, well, I bought this fund three months ago, six months ago. And it's down, but I like you, so I'm going to hold it for a little longer. And I say, well, I said, do you think that's bad? It can get way worse. And they say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, like, you know, like they're talking about like a long only stock fund. I'm like, well, if the market goes down 50, like I would expect this fund to be down 50. If the market goes down 70, like, you know, but also as an active strategy, it could go probably years underperforming and looking different. And so there was a great um, Ken French quote where he's like, if people are trying to draw inferences from performance on these short-term time horizons, he's like, it's crazy because 
you know, there's a fair amount of randomness in the world. And this short term sort of performance chasing is what gets you into, into so much trouble. So, right. Um, I mean, I think there was a study done on Peter Lynch, who's one of the greatest investors of all time. And he had his fidelity fund for many, many years. And they looked at the inflows and the outflows. And they determined that over the entire time, and I forgot what he did, like 25, 30% a year, like some amazing number. Over the entire time, uh, on a dollar basis, there was no money created at all. People uh, added at the peaks. And he had, you know, the money comes in, he has to spend it. So he buys more shares. And then on the pullbacks, everyone redeems and he has to sell it all at, at the lows. You know? So if you held it the whole time, you made a lot of money. But most people didn't hold it the whole time. They basically bought the peaks and sold the lows. And, and that there was no dollars created during like a 20-year period where some of the best performance ever created was, was created. And it just shows you the, the wrong mentality of investors. You might have better data than this than me. I mean, dude, I, I give 50 examples of this. My favorite example I used to always give, and it's, you know, in many cases for these public mutual funds, you know, it's not the portfolio manager's fault, right? Like they're just doing their normal day to day, but the investors buy what they wish they had bought. And so Ken Hebner's CGM fund, I mean, that thing for a long time was printing like 25% a year. He just closed down this week. Oh no! Did he really? I didn't see that. He's an older guy, so he's an older guy. He, he, I think, mean, I think his exact quote was, "Why am I bothering?" He, he's down to a couple hundred million. That was basically his money, and he's like, "I'm investing in volatile sectors, and it's just too hard. The money comes in when I don't really want it. It comes out when I really want it. Like I should have closed down ten years ago." He's actually having a great year. It looks like he had a, you know, it was like a up 70% year or something. I think 2000, 2010 was, was a, a great period for him. Anyway, same thing, like the average dollar invested in his funds was, was negative. It wasn't like whether it was 20 or 22%, it was like, it, it was zero or negative. But you see, I mean, you've seen it with, you know, the ARC funds more recently, like that thing moonshot up and, and, and rocket ship crashing down too. But the flows, it's like, it's sad and it's frustrating, but, uh, you know, it sort of is what it is. Going back to what we said earlier, it's sort of like the, the story is old as time. Yeah, this is the business we have chosen for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, we've done a whirlwind tour. Anything else on your mind? The U.S. dollar has been a, a bit of a wrecking ball for, I feel like, this macro. What, what does that play into your thesis? A lot, I feel like a lot of people, the assumption is commodities, you know, are really going to only do well in a dollar weakness, but that hasn't really been the case this cycle with the dollar romping up and, and many commodities kind of doing the same. What's your thesis there? Do you have any perspective on the dollar? I don't have any super strong view on the dollar because I don't know, really understand uh, when uh, the Federal Reserve pivots. They're going to pivot because like I said, they won't catch inflation. And eventually they're going to admit defeat and save the rest of the economy. And I don't know the timing on that. Only Powell knows that. I mean, it's probably going to be one of his golfing buddies crying about their quarterly performance. <laughs> but, you know, like you said, uh, in, in the commodities uh, normally don't do well during the dollar strength. And the fact that they're doing well during dollar strength, is, I think, is really telling you a story. Because the dollar is not always going to be strong. And when the dollar does pull back, I think the commodities really just scream out of control. And I mean, the fact that they've been so strong during a period of dollar strength, I think it tells you how strong the sector is. Um, you know, I like to believe that, you know, 
sectors and stocks that do well during periods with with bad news, and I'd say a very strong dollar is bad news. I mean, those are stocks that uh, you want to own because when the news gets better, you know, the stock's going to really slingshot. And I think uh, that's what's about to happen to uh, commodities and all of the commodities. You know, the supply demand uh, deficits in oil, you know, you could say the same thing with copper, you could say the same thing with zinc, you could say the thing, basically all the commodities have had minimal investment. And then there's massive amounts of demand just because, I mean, if you look at, you know, we had a huge move in commodities in the 2000s because uh, China was booming and this decade is India's decade. And then you layer on top the fact that they're going to keep building these green things and uh, all this green technology needs huge amounts of all sorts of base metals. And so you have India and uh, the, the green economy at the same time. And I think you're just going to see the demand for commodities stay super elevated and likely accelerate at, at any time that interest rates decline or the dollar declines. How much of a role does shorting play in your portfolio? Is that something that you spend much time with? Is it sort of market dependent? I hardly ever short. I'm just not very good at it. Uh, you know, after 25 years, I know what I'm good at. Uh, I'm good at getting inflections right at the moment where things start getting really better after they've been miserable for a decade or two. And, you know, you get to make uh, 5, 10, sometimes 20 times your money doing that. Like, w- why would I short? I mean, uh, you know how many times I've been short of fraud and it just doubles? Like, I, I don't feel like I-, I have any edge. And so I just stopped doing that. Uh, focus on what I'm good at. I've been surprised how many of my friends over the past two years have literally destroyed their numbers over shorting, whether it was shorting frauds, meme stocks. Uh, you know, I'm just amazed how much upside volatility there is in individual names. The rules have changed with all the Robin Hood guys. And it just amazes me that people keep shorting when you, you know that you, you have no edge. And even the best short sellers have suffered. And it just seems like a terrible uh, strategy versus just buying good companies. And like I said, I mean, the value goes up every day that you hold it. It's just, it's just a better strategy. And so I, I don't shorten, uh, you know, I, I feel sorry for anyone who does. Before we let you go, you got to let us know, you've probably had, I don't know, thousands of trades and investments all over the world over the years, good, bad, in between. Most memorable, what is seared in Cuppy's brain as one that just like, when I ask that question, is the one that sticks out. Uh, let's talk about Tesla. I was short that in 2018. I was short that in 2019. I thankfully uh, covered uh, right when he started really uh, fudging the numbers. And thankfully, I covered. Uh, I have a bunch of friends who got taken out in body bags. It, I mean, I covered at 200 a share, I think, two splits ago. <laughs> you know, it was a 10 or 20 baggers since where I covered. And, you know, if you have a 2% position and it's a 10 bagger, that's going to cost you, you know, 1800 bips. If it's a 5% position at 10 baggers, you're out of the business. And, you know, the hardest, I mean, the most important thing in this game is just not going broke and not getting taken out of the game. And I have a lot of friends that got taken out of the game because they refused to cover or they even added to the short because they were so sure that the valuation made no sense. And I mean, it just, made less sense as time went on, but didn't stop the price from going up. And, you know, I lost a, you know, a couple hundred basis points and many of my friends lost their careers. And so I just think it's really uh, like a memorable thing because every step of the way where it seemed crazier, Elon Musk would just, you know, turn the volume up to 11 and do it over and over again. And, you know, here we are, you know, he's, he's in a battle with uh, the Ukrainians, the Russians, Twitter, his own company, and it just, the circus goes on. <laughs> 
And how do you think about those? I mean, you, you say you don't do as much shorting anymore, but but even on some of the long ideas, is there sort of like a stop loss or is it simply has the story changed? Has the thesis changed? Like, how do you think about the, all right, I'm wrong, I'm moving on part of the trade? Well, it all comes down to the thesis. Um, you know, when you look at anything I own, you can have a best case, worst case, mid case. I mean, the range of outcomes is so wide that it doesn't even make sense really to model it very much. You know, I'm in an inflection situation, plug a price of energy in and you end up with such differences in uh, cash flow. What's the point of doing it? Uh, the exercise is much more important just to get the thesis right. And if the thesis is wrong, it doesn't matter how cheap it is. Uh, there's a lot of cheap stocks that go nowhere. I mean, they've gone nowhere for decades. I'm here to compound my money very rapidly and recycle my capital when it's not working for me. And so if it's cheap, but there's no tailwind, I'm out. And I take my loss and I move on. If uh, it's working, I stay in it. I don't usually sell so much on valuation. I sell when the thesis starts losing some strength. A lot of these things, you know, it's, it's like, the, like a cat four hurricane. It's just, you know, going and going. And then it kind of dials back to a three and a two. And you kind of feel that. And the share price might keep going. It might not. But as the thesis loses some strength, you just have to get out of it. And that, that's usually what drives it for me. That, that's my exit. Not price. There's probably no better lesson, listeners, from, from the older crowd who's uh, got enough of the scars than learning to uh, take losses as not something that is a bad thing, but a good thing, you know, and move on and always always live to trade another day uh, is, is, uh, and not get taken out in the, in the body bag. Cuppy, uh, if people want to learn more, what are the best spots uh, to get in touch with you, places to learn more about your newsletter, your fund, watch you pick fights on Twitter? What's the, what's the best spots? Uh, if you want to watch me pick fights on Twitter, it's at HCuppy, H-K-U-P-P-Y. Uh, apologies in advance. I'm probably going to offend you eventually. If you want to you know, go follow my blog, it's Adventures in Capitalism. Uh, I write there every week or two whenever I have something to say. And go to KEDM.com. Uh, take a free trial. I, I really don't think you'll be able to trade without it. I, I know I can't go back. So that's how you find me. I don't know if you saw this. This was Meb's humor. So, you know, as someone who's been involved in markets long enough, and now that there's social media, it used to be blog comments, letters, the editor, where we would get all the the hate. Now it's obviously Twitter and elsewhere. And you got to have a thick skin, uh, you and I, but we get to the point where, and it used to be book reviews. That was, that was, those used to be rough, but we started collecting over the years. We call it Meb Haterade, where we think at this point, it's just like pretty funny. Usually they don't get too evil and personal, but listeners, Cuppy had a good tweet where he was talking about hanging out in Puerto Rico and, and some, probably a non-account came in and said, you know, he's talking about me. Who is this guy? Meh Faber. And so I get my name mispronounced, misspelled all the time, Starbucks, et cetera. But I thought that was the absolute funniest thing I've ever heard. Meh Faber. I was like, I need to put that on t-shirts. I'm like, my wife is going to love this. And so of course, as uh, you know, childish as I am, uh, I like, we need, we need a freezing cold uh, takes for a uh, Twitter account for, for investing. But um, I certainly waited for the rest of the year to, to go by. And I was like, Matt Faber sounds pretty good this year, doesn't it? And like restarted the thread of this poor person eight months together. <laughs> so anyway, you got to have a good sense of humor with the, with the trolls and the haters. Otherwise uh, you get, uh, you get too, it's too, per it gets too personal. And, uh, but it, I thought you'd find that funny. So I'm going to get some Matt Faber shirts made at some point. Cubby, it was a blast. I look forward to seeing you in the real world in uh, Puerto Rico, the new office. Um, you gotta, you gotta buy a few extra surfboards so we can come visit. We can, uh, we can. Yeah, all come on down. Together. I got a foamy and I got an epoxy now, so you can choose whichever one you want. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm glad we did this. 
Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.